Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Today's episode is brought to you by Basecap. So I remember when, you know, really building companies as an entrepreneur, how really frustrating is when you have people missing out deadlines, there's people that are not copied on emails, and then, you know, like everyone ends up failing in the pursuit of, of, of accomplishing things. So email is really great when you're doing one-to-one conversations, but when you have a ton of people there copied, you know, there's going to be people that are going to be missing out on stuff. So for project management, I actually found Basecamp and I found it to be a really fantastic solution. You know, basically what they are is a collaboration type of uh, tool that allows people to really engage with their offer message boards, the to-dos, the schedules, their document sharing, the group chats, and other tools that are going to help you in taking the game of your company to the next level. So go to Basecamp.com forward slash dealmakers and sign up today for their 30-day free trial. And there is no credit card that is required and you can cancel at any time. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder. We're going to be talking a lot about space and about building, scaling, financing and everything in between. So Without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Mina Mitri. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm excited to chat about everything space and space business. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane, because both of your parents, you know, were from Egypt and obviously, you know, you guys immigrated when you were seven. But tell us how was life growing up? So in Egypt, it's a very, very different environment. It's not really one that's set up for some sort of entrepreneurship. They definitely encourage the range of professional degrees and professional fields. That's your priority. When you grow up, it's, will you be a doctor, pharmacist, or engineer? What's your professional designation? And in search of just a better and more exciting life, my parents were first-generation immigrants that came to Canada and wanted us to, to see what we were able to accomplish. Um, we immigrated at the age of seven. I learned English on the fly uh, being here in the country. And it's been a pretty exciting journey from there to where I am today. Uh, having built a space company, I did my undergrad and my master's at the University of Toronto, worked on a lot of cool stuff during that time. But all of it was just surrounding myself with the really great people that I get to work with today. And that's what I got to do from the university time. And what, why do you think your parents chose Toronto out of all places? So there was only a few alternatives that all of our family was immigrating out of Egypt. It was whether we were going to go to Australia, Europe, or Canada, uh, and then a few were going into the U.S. So they're really just following the the trail of their own family members that were all departing out of Egypt. And and in your case, um, obviously, you know, it sounds like you were very set, very much set on aerospace for some time. So what do you think triggered your love for space? So uh, unlike most people who might have grown up in a childhood where they were surrounded by, you know, the space shuttle launch and that era, I didn't actually start with a love for space. Uh, I started off with an interest in engineering. Both my parents, my mom and my dad were engineers by, by training. And so they really encouraged me down that field. And it's through my time at the University of Toronto where I worked on an offer profit that I 
grew a love and a passion for aerospace at large. Uh, and this not-for-profit, we used to design and build rocket drones and satellites for competitions around the world. Uh, we got to do really cool things like mix laughing gas, aluminum powder, and candle wax to make our own rocket engines from scratch. And that was just such a formative experience to learn what was happening in the space sector and really built my love for it. Now, in your case, actually, even even though you already had encountered the love for aerospace, you know, and then, you know, you pursue your master's and all that stuff, you still, you know, took a different route and decided to take a job in, in early stage startups. So why did you take a different path, you know, that then, you know, obviously you realize, oh, my God, no, you know, I got to go back to, to, to this other thing. Well, I think it was all with the same end game in mind. I knew I wanted to build my own business, but I was going to learn on the shoulders of giants. So people that were already started down that path so I can inherit whatever they had learned through the process. So I worked for a few early stage ventures after commercializing my master's research, just so that I can understand what was happening in early stage startup. How do you build a business? What is super important? What are the things you want to avoid and just accelerate what I had to learn to build my own? So then, so then in this case, at what point do you realize, hey, I think it's uh, time, you know, for me to build my own? Yeah, so I worked with some a really great pair of co-founders uh, in the pretty early stages, uh, ran the, our engineering team, helped them build and launch the first product, and then went through the process of raising first capital with them after they'd been a part of Y Combinator. And it was at that time that I felt like I had the tool set enough to go out and start my own early venture and realize I wanted nothing more than to go back to my passion of working in the aerospace sector. So then what happened next? What happened next was a little bit crazy. We were uh, sort of debating what would be next in my life, my career, what I wanted to do. I had an offer on the table for another early, well, not really early stage, but relatively well-funded company out in San Francisco. And I was speaking with the people that I thought would be my co-founders to help me build Kepler. And at the time, I told them, like, hey, I'm at a decision point. Either I need you all to leave your PhDs, leave your full-time jobs and join me on this crazy adventure, or I'm going to go take this job out in San Francisco. And then my co-founder the next week called me up and said, hey, I left my PhD. My other co-founder called me up the next week and said, I've quit my full-time job. Let's go dive into this full-time and see what we can do to make Kepler successful. And that was like the triggering moment where we you know, decided to ultimately go out and build our own business. And what were the initial steps here? Because I mean, obviously building a, a, a company like this, I mean, it's, it's, not an easy, it's not an easy thing. You know, it's not like just doing another SaaS you know, type of company. So what, what were the next steps here? I don't think there's a clear or straight line logic path that you can generically apply to any company. But for us, we knew that this was a visionary business. You know, for for building something in space, it's not the the same kind of business that you have your known uh, set of metrics you've got to meet to reach your respective funding milestones. For Kepler, it is a is a very very visionary business. It's the idea of bringing internet access that we so enjoy here on Earth, but outside of this world where no internet access exists. And it's aligning the right set of people to that vision and then charting a path towards its accomplishment. So, you know, we ask ourselves every day, what are we going to do today that helps us put us forward on the path towards internet and space? And you you, you run through a, a chain of logic tests and if it doesn't work, then you're onto the scratch pad and redoing the, the effort to figure out how do you get yourself there. Um, I don't think there was as clearly a defined set of next steps beyond the fact that, hey, 
we were going to go out and build this business. What's the first thing we need to do? We need to prove we can get data back down to Earth from space. So we built the technology, built and launched our first satellites uh, just to prove we could do it. Now, in terms of the business model for the people that are listening, what ended up being the business model of Kepler? How do you guys make money? Yeah, so the business model of Kepler is very simple. It's pretty similar to your Verizons, AT&Ts, any cellular network provider. We are the communications provider for space. So when you want to put something into orbit to use it, you need three things. You need to build the thing that's going to go into space. You need access to a rocket to get you up there. And you need communications to whatever it is that you built. We are that communications provider. So our business model is a uh, pay-per-use rate plan for every time that your object in space communicates with our network. And also in terms of fundraising, Mina, how much capital have you guys raised today? Yeah, so to date, we've raised just over 80 million US into the business. And that has been throughout different rounds. Now, I know that in 2018, when you guys were doing the Series A, it was pretty nerve-wracking. Why, why was it nerve-wracking? What happened? Well, in 2018, that was probably the lowest point of the financial markets. As we looked back and saw like stock price performance of publicly traded equities through the year of 2018 and through 2017 and 2019, we saw that when we were raising capital was just absolutely the worst time. And I remember this so distinctly. So investors were turning down meetings. Uh, we were having a lot of difficulty getting that early traction. And in fact, our leading investor for our Series A initially turned us down. They took a look at the business model, took a look at the market conditions, and were pretty concerned that um, it, it would just be a tough slog because it's a bad time in the market. Uh, and I remember going back and really thinking of like, what are the reasons why this investor said no? And why do we really want them? And we built out uh, over the course of the next month, like a, a dedicated tiger team within the company that helped us go out and address every one of the concerns that they raised. And then uh, I decided to reach back out. It was like, hey, I think we've solved for every problem that you thought you had with this business. Do you want to talk again? And the investor came back to us and said, Let, let's hear it out. We sat down, went through it, and they converted their no to a yes, which I think is the first time that they've done that in the fund. So we're, we're pretty excited about that experience, but it was crazy nerve wracking at the time. And what do you think clicked? What do you think was that concern that was in between you and the money? Oh, I think it was uh, clarity above all else. So what I, uh, what I found oftentimes is there's, you know, misstated assumptions that people make in communication because they're already dealing with like a hundred different alternative uh, companies that they can fund. So uh, it's really hard for you to clearly communicate what the business need is, how you've addressed all the concerns and how you're going to make this into a wild success and doing so in such a way that people are able to understand it. Because the first reaction when you tell somebody you're going to build a business in space they kind of look at you a little funny. They think, are you, are, you, are you crazy? Is this a real thing? Is, can you actually build a business up in space? It's not common knowledge. But um, you know, having the right clarity to talk about why that's not really a risk, why it's like funding uh, any other business um, was probably the pivotal point between us and the money. And for the cost of building a software business, we built a space company. And in that case, you know, here for you guys, I mean, what were the expectations that you encountered from going, let's say, from like a C to a Series A, from a Series A to like a Series B? How did the uh, capital raising efforts shifted from one cycle to the next? Yeah, I think it's important to set in context for our business, which I would broadly categorize as infrastructure. 
and this type of an infrastructure business lags the traditional SaaS funding cycles and expectations. So an infrastructure business at the Series A looks like a seed company. An infrastructure business at the Series B looks like a Series A company. And so um, I think it's level setting those expectations with investors, looking at peer comps, uh, and that's what allows you to sort of be successful through it and what we learned through the cycle. And the measures of success are dramatically different. So for us, it's, hey, can you de-risk the technologies at the first step? Then the next measure of success, can you build a product? And then that's the next step. And then the step thereafter is, can you prove that that product has you know good unit economics? It's not very different from your traditional venture capital business, but it definitely takes a little, uh, it's a step behind compared to the development cycles of your traditional SaaS business. And also this segment is not like a segment that, uh, that has been like around for a long time with a ton of players that have a ton of operational expertise, you know, that you can tap into as investors. So what was that uh, prospecting, you know, process too for you guys? I mean, what were, what were your expectations on the investors that you wanted to onboard? Yeah, so I think that's uh, depending on the point in time that you're describing here. So the investor community has actually grown a lot more educated and astute to what's happening in this market. If you talk about it in 2015 and 2016 time period, I think definitely that held true. Uh, the investors you were targeting were ones that were like investing in robotics and physical hardware, but haven't necessarily done space before. But if you take a look at the market now, there's dedicated space venture capital funds that exist. And the community at large has already seen some success with uh, a few exits that have happened in 2020 and several exits that have happened in 2021. It's created a lot more education, so it's becoming more mainstream. Uh, there, there's a lot more access to investors, but initially it was targeting you know deep tech and robotics investors, and nowadays you'll find quite a few dedicated space venture capitalists. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I gotta tell you that. You know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance you know that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition so that gap that i found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when i met my co-founder at pantera mike Sieberson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. And as we're talking about people here, I mean, now you guys have about 100 uh, people involved with the business. How did you go to about 
building the team? I mean, what would you say were the most critical hires at the beginning? And then what was the, that process of, you know, continuing the journey of, of adding more folks to, 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 to the business? Yeah, in the early days of the business, I think the most critical hires are general purpose smart people. Because the problem is you you don't really know exactly what you're going to build. You don't need that specialized expertise. You don't have sort of people that are just domain experts because you don't really know what you need to do. And a lot of what has to happen is figuring out what's the next step, what is the right thing to do, is it good, a good use of time or not. So this concept of general purpose smart people is finding people that are generally intelligent, probably from your own networks that you've worked with in the past, that you've seen through university and that you've admired, and you think of how they can apply themselves into the business and how they can adapt to whatever is needed. And as we continue to grow, um, we, we sort of at the, the 30 to 50 person mark started to realize that obviously you need quite a bit more specialization. You need people that are field experts that are really great in the thing that you need to build that need to do it very effectively. And then thereafter, it's like, do we have the right executive team? Have we bring, brought that on board? Are they capable of operating a business at our scale? And I think one of the biggest things I've learned through this process is not taking for granted what it takes to build an executive team. Uh, because an executive team isn't formed overnight or hired overnight. An executive team is built through going uh, through some really tremendously difficult problems and being able to resolve them and coming out on the other side ahead of it. And and in that sense, you know, for, for you guys too, I mean, when 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 really launching stuff into space, I mean, that's not a that's not an easy thing. Uh, I know that you know back in 2021, you know, when you guys were launching a bunch of satellites, you know, there was all types of stuff that that kept popping in, you know, in terms of perhaps obstacles or challenges, you know, which is just part of this journey. So what happened, you know, when you guys were trying to launch, you know, eight satellites all at once? Yeah, that's a really great question. We had a tremendously difficult time because we were going from, you know, launching one to two satellites to building a factory that can produce up to 10 satellites a month, building a team and building the product. So obviously things go wrong in that process. And I remember this really vividly. We had a launch coming up in early January and nearing the end of December, we were coming into the final assembly step of these satellites. And this is just like bolting on different pieces together. One of the things we had to put on was the solar panels. They're what generate power for the satellites. And in that process, one of the technicians came to us and said, hey, the solar panels can't be mounted on the satellites. They're incorrectly assembled. You physically couldn't put them on. It must have taken us three weeks running 24 hours without exaggeration, sleeping at the office to try and remedy the issue. We had almost everybody in the company bring, coming in to help support the development, the update, the uh, build of new solar panels, the modifications that had to happen just so that we can make that launch. And I think we cut it down to the very last day that we could possibly ship those satellites to the launch site had them go on, had them go up into orbit, and all of them are working in orbit today. But what it took to get them into operation when there are so many things happening in parallel, you're building the company, building the manufacturing facility, building the product, um, it really took an incredibly motivated team to get us there. And and I don't think people, you know, probably realize the amount of things that can go wrong when you're trying to launch something to space, correct? But I'd also say 
a lot of people don't realize how much of that risk has already been managed. You know, launches are up to 96 to 97% success rate. Uh, wow. You very rarely hear of failed launches in the sector. Um, the hardware reliability and improvement has leveraged the years of experience and learnings we've had. So um, I think, you know, beforehand in 2012, you might say it was incredibly difficult to build and launch and put a satellite into orbit that would work. But now we've had this industry mature so much so over the past, you know, eight to 10 years that, you know, we can ex reasonably expect we'll put something into orbit and it's going to work. And does it take a long time to plan putting something into orbit? No, that's the crazy part. A lot of people believe that it, you know, have been, have grown up in the time period where uh, to put something into space, it was a national country priority. It would take three to five years in design, and it was intended to operate for 15 years. What's changed so much so now is that access to information, access to goods has become increasingly commoditized. So you can buy parts off of the equivalent of Amazon, but for satellite parts. Uh, you can assemble your kit satellite, you can catch a rideshare. So all in all, it can take you as little as 12 months to go from an idea to put some, putting something into orbit. That's amazing. Now, in your case, I mean, you've been involved with aerospace since 2007 when you were studying in Toronto. How do you think that perhaps, you know, as human beings, you know, our relationship or perhaps things have changed, you know, towards space? Yeah, I think we always get the question of what's the benefit of exploration? What is the benefit of building stuff for space? And something we have to keep in mind is all the developments that have happened in space that have directly served a benefit for us here on Earth. Whether it's the, the build out of GPS, which we use every single day, or the availability and access to weather information, to images of the Ukraine all that is enabled by developments that are happening in space. So, you know, I think it, it's it's the broad market perception of how does building something in space help us here on Earth? And that's what's really changed over the last um, 10 to 12 years. And, and, and in your guys' case, how many, how many satellites do you guys have out there in orbit? So today, Kepler has 19 satellites on orbit. We are the largest operator of spacecraft in Canada. That's amazing. Now, Imagine that you go to sleep tonight, Mina, and you wake up in a world where the vision, you know, of Kepler is fully realized. What does that world look like? That world looks like having internet in space, the same way we get to enjoy it here on Earth, that will make any data generated in space ubiquitous, available, useful for here for us here on Earth, and expand the reach of humanity to become a spacefaring civilization. Because if you think of what's required for us to, you know, habitat multiple planets, or to extend the reach beyond Earth, you need transportation, you need communications, obviously, you also need habitats and, and uh, food and shelter. Uh, so communications is such an essential piece to that, that future vision of the world. And that's what I hope we realize in building Kepler. And as you guys are building all this infrastructure in orbit, I mean, what kind of advancements, you know, do you think we're going to be able to see and, and what kind of impact, you know, what's going to be that before and after kind of thing? Yeah, so there's, there's two ways to kind of look at this. There's the set of things that become possible that we don't know of today. And then there's the set of things that become possible that we do know of today. So let me talk about the set of things that become possible that are really well known 
These will be, you know, imagery from conflict-ridden regions like the Ukraine would travel and be available in real time. Today, that's not the case. If you take a picture in space, it might take you anywhere from a few hours to a few days before you're able to receive it because there is no internet access outside of this world. So it's kind of like the equivalent of having um, a dial-up in, in an internet age. It's just not a way for you to get data back to Earth. So those are the problems we're solving today. How do we get data from space to Earth in real time, where today can be hours, if not days delayed, and really affecting uh, you know everything from decision-making for conflict-ridden regions, all the way to access to weather information for climate monitoring and for forecasting. The set of things that we don't know about are what really excite me, because I think we couldn't have called, you know, at the time internet was being built, that you and I would be using the internet to have a podcast today. But that's just what happened as a result of building this, this infrastructure and on, on this fundamental premise of we want to connect everything in the world. So that's what really excites me. It's what are the things that become possible that we couldn't have dreamed of because we now have internet access outside of this world. I love that. And now for the, um, for, for ima imagine if I put you here into a time machine and let's say I, I'm able to bring you back in time, perhaps to that moment where you were thinking about launching something of your own. Maybe, maybe to that time that you, know, you, you had your stint, you know, working with other early stage companies and now, you know, it was your time, your time to go at it. And you had the opportunity of having a chat with that younger Mina and you were able to give that younger Mina one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? So I think the one biggest piece of advice I'd give to my former self is uh, don't assume is there's anything constraining you by way of capital resources. I would really, really focus on like the problem you're after, the solution space that you're working towards and what's the right thing to do for the business and stress test that as much as possible as many people. Because you'll hear conventional wisdom on what a seed round financing you could be or what a series a round financing could be uh, but these are just sort of artificial constructs we've created for ourselves and rather if you think about what is the right thing to build the business the money will follow that's probably the biggest uh, single thing i'd leave with my former self and is there like a like a process you know to really land or to arrive to that right thing that you're pointing to yes uh go out and ask and solicit for as much peer-reviewed feedback as you can get. That's, that's the one thing. And go out and reiterate on whatever it is that you're working towards. And, and, and during that, that process, I mean, is there like a specific people that you think it might make sense? Would it be founders, investors, potential customers, or who do you think could, be, could give the best insight? Yeah, this is a really challenging one and a skill that I think people actually have to develop which is figuring out who to listen to for what advice. So in that early stage, there's no generality to say like, yeah, go talk to early stage founders or investors. Those are the right uh, general people. I'd say in that early stage, you need to know who it is and what they're good at and whether you can listen to their advice. And that's a skill you got to develop. And that's probably the, the single most important thing to, to spend your time on. Got it. So, so whether or not they have authority in that domain in which they're looking to advise you on, correct? Exactly. Amazing. So, Mina, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, they can reach out to us in any one of our social media channels, at Kepler Comms for Twitter, 
or uh, info at kepler.space. Those are all great ways for them to reach out and say hi. Amazing. Well, Mina, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.